Good morning, everyone. Dobre Rano. Say that right? All right. Good. Um, we are continuing in our uh, look at the book of Philippians this morning, and we're going to be looking at Philippians chapter 2, uh, verses 12 through 18, if you'd like to follow along, and we'll uh, put that up on the slides as well. Hear with me the word of the Lord. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing so that you may become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray real quick before we look deeper at our passage today. Gracious God, we do pray and thank you. We thank you for all you have done for us and your son, Jesus Christ, that you have revealed yourself to us through him, through your word. And we ask this morning, Lord, whatever you have to say to us today, would we be open to receive it? We pray this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Friends, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I have to confess, I have always had a hard time uh, with this verse. I've always had a hard time with this, uh, this phrase that Paul uses here, to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's always felt to me like it doesn't quite line up with everything else that Paul says to us in the New Testament with the rest of his teaching. I mean, this is the Apostle Paul here. This is the Apostle Paul who insists upon salvation by grace alone, by faith alone. In Christ alone, not by works, so that no one can boast. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, he says that explicitly. This is the Apostle Paul. This is Paul who insists that nothing, not even death, can separate us from the love of God, which is for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans 8, 31 and 32. This is Paul who wants us to have the assurance of our salvation. To truly know and experience the freedom that we have in Christ in this life. And then he starts this passage that we have today by saying, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. By saying, make sure that you are being obedient. And this has always felt a little bit legalistic to me. As if maybe, as if maybe, despite all of the talk about grace and everything else that Paul talks about, maybe it really still is just about following the rules. Maybe it still is about being good people. And we need to make sure that we do more good things than we do bad things in this life. Or else we might not get into heaven in the end. I think it's the fear and trembling part that that has really uh, caused me problems. It's created some anxiety for me when I read this. What am I supposed to be afraid of when I read this passage? What is it that I'm supposed to be afraid of? Is my salvation really in jeopardy, in doubt? If I mess up one too many times, am I done? Is Is it over? 
Could I still work my way back in? Maybe there's some deal I could do. When I was growing up, uh, I used to go to a youth conference uh, in the summers. It was called The Great Escape. I went when I was in, in sixth and seventh grades. It's a lot like a TCK camp that we have here at ICP. Uh, it, was a, it was a camp and conference, and they have different speakers come, and we'd have praise and worship every night. Had a big impact on my life and faith. And I remember there was one year that I went uh, where one of the speakers who came was an actor. And so instead of just getting, standing up and giving us a talk or a sermon like what I do on Sunday mornings, uh, he kind of would give us this one-man show, and he would act things out. And what he would do each night is he would take on different characters. He would inhabit different characters who were supposed to be uh, misconceptions about who God is. And so he would portray these characters for us, these popular misconceptions of who God is. So one example would be God the butler. And so he had this whole thing where he would act out God the butler. And this was God who was just waiting for us to come to him uh, and to do our bidding whenever we ask. This is the God who, when we have something that comes up in our lives that we need help with, we go to God in prayer and we say, God, I really need your help with this. And we hope that he responds positively. And then when he does, we say, thank you very much. And we leave and we don't have any more to do with God until the next time we need something. So this is God as butler. That's one popular misconception we might have. Another one was this, God, the absent-minded grandfather. God, the absent-minded grandfather. Now, this is the God who is very loving, who is very kind, but is kind of old-fashioned, a little bit out of touch, uh, and in spite of uh, having our best interests in mind, doesn't really know what's going on and can't really relate to us. So that's another one that we have. And I want to just say to anyone out there who is a grandfather, we know that that is not true. Grandfathers, okay? But this is a popular misconception we have of God. God loves us and he really cares about us, but doesn't really know what's going on in our lives. And so we have a distance there. So one of the characters that this actor would portray for us was God as police officer. God is police officer. And being in the United States, the way that he portrayed this was more God as Old West Sheriff, right? He had a cowboy hat on. He had a holster, uh, two pistols. And this is the God who is just waiting for us to mess up. This is the God who just wants us to make a mistake because then he's going to get us. He's going to bust us. And he's going to mete out punishment when we mess up, when we sin. And whenever I've heard this verse, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, it reminds me of that misconception of who God is. This is what I would think about. Work out your salvation when fear and trembling. And it would create anxiety for me. Is God just up there waiting for us to mess up? And then when we do, he's going to punish us. We're going to be in trouble with God. I just want to say, if you have never read this verse this way, I'm sorry if I'm creating undue anxiety for you uh, this morning. I apologize. You don't need to think about it this way because this is a, a, a not great way to interpret this passage. I did take comfort in reading in one of my commentaries this week. The author said that this has long been a difficult passage. This has long been a difficult passage, especially for evangelical Protestants, of which I am one, uh, because it smacks of this idea of works righteousness. There is no freedom in this interpretation of this verse. But this also isn't what Paul is really trying to get at with what he's saying here. The good news is that this image of God is a false one. 
It is a misconception. This is not what God is really like. The great thing for me as a middle school student, as a junior high student, was at the end of the week at this youth conference, this actor, this uh, presenter, uh, would wrap up his whole presentation by giving a very powerful contemporary retelling of the story of the prodigal son in which he was he took on the role of the prodigal son and told the story of his loving father who was waiting for him to return with grace and with kindness and saying this is the true image of God this is what God is really like gracious and compassionate slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and mercy This is the God who we worship and serve. And Paul has also given us an accurate portrayal of Christ in the passage right before this one, the one that we looked at last week, Philippians 2, verses 5 through 11. This is the passage where we see the heart of Paul's theology as we talked about last week. It shows us the big picture, the universal scope of who Christ is and the work of redemption and salvation that God is doing through him. We see Jesus, the exalted son of God, who humbled himself and became a human being and humbled himself all the way down to death, even death on a cross for our sake, for us and for our salvation and whom God the father then exalted again so that he now reigns as Lord over all of creation. And this is another right image of God, right conception of who God is. And our passage this morning that we just read starts with therefore, or another way to translate it would be so then, which points us to what comes immediately before the passage that we looked at last week. And we want to remember what Paul is doing here in Philippians in this whole letter. What he's trying to do is to encourage this church to keep living out their faith. To stay true to Jesus Christ, even in the face of his own imprisonment as their former pastor and leader even in the face of opposition that they are facing in their own community and culture, even with the division and conflict that is developing within their own church body. Paul's big concern is still that the gospel would go forth, that it would advance so that people who are far from God would be brought near to him in Jesus Christ. That's what Paul wants to see on top of everything else. And so Paul is both encouraging the church in Philippi with this letter and instructing them at the same time. It's like he's saying, keep up the good work. Good job. Keep up the good work, but keep these things in mind as well. Here are some other things that I want you to be aware of and want you to put into practice. And one of the things that he emphasizes in his letter is their ethical behavior. And Paul is saying to the church that our ethical behavior, how we live as followers of Christ, is a part of our witness in this world. And he says, look, this matters both in how you live as individuals, your own sort of personal piety, how you live out your faith as an individual, but also how you live together in community, how you live together as the church. This matters for your witness. We have a communal witness in the world. People pay attention to how we interact with each other as the church. And it says something about what we believe. Do we love one another? Do we love one another within the church? And do we love this world that God has created? And do we want to see it redeemed? These things matter for our witness. And people people can tell whether these things are true about us or not. 
So, so far, Paul has called the church to unity. He's called them to humility for the sake of that unity and has pointed us to Christ as our example. But in a deeper way to say uh, that for him to live is Christ. And so that that should be true for us as well. That we should be able to say that for us to live is Christ. And we heard this great quote last week from uh, the, the Bible project that says, Our stories are to be lived expressions of Christ's story. Our stories are to be lived expressions of Christ's story. That's what it means to say, to live is Christ. And so after Paul's sort of theological interlude last week on the person and work of Jesus Christ that we, that we looked at last week, Paul now builds off of that to give us more instruction and exhortation. He says, so then, so then, because of how Christ is, or better yet to say, because of who Christ is, and because he is your Lord, you should also live this way. Because of who Christ is and because he is your Lord, you too should also live this way. Everything Paul instructs them to do is grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ. So already he said, be humble. Christ humbled himself, and so we should also humble ourselves for the sake of the gospel. And now he says, just as you have always obeyed, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And in that line, Paul is making two connections to last week's passage. And the first one is this. It's about obedience. Jesus is described in verse 8 of Philippians chapter 2 as being obedient. And we looked at this a little bit last week, that Jesus is the obedient son of the heavenly father. And even though they are one in nature, they are equal to each other, they have the same status with one another, Jesus willingly submits to his father's will. And we see this most profoundly in the garden the night before Jesus is crucified. And we remember that Jesus prayed to his father saying, if this cup can be taken from me, then please do so. But not my will, but your will be done. And he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ was obedient, perfectly obedient. And so we are called to obedience as well. And this brings us back to the dilemma that I've had about this passage, obedience. What are we supposed to do with obedience? How are we not talking about works righteousness here when we talk about obedience? Haven't we been set free from the law? Isn't this what Paul talks about so much in other places, especially in the book of Romans? Didn't Christ fulfill the law for us because we couldn't, because of our sin? And well, the answer is yes, yes and yes. We have been set free from the law. Jesus has fulfilled the law perfectly for us because we couldn't. But we want to remember what Paul says elsewhere in other places. He says, should we go on sinning because we are not under the law, but under grace? By no means. By no means. Paul is saying that grace sets us free from sin. Why would we go back to it? Grace has set us free from our sin. Why would we go back to it? Because sin will master us. When we were in our sin, we were enslaved to it. And so once we have been set free, if we go back to our sin, we are putting ourselves in bondage once again. Sin is not good for us. I hope that goes without saying, but sin is not good for us. It is destructive by its nature. And if we continue to live in it, or if we return back to it, it's going to bring about its own destructive consequences in our lives. 
And so while we have been set free from the law, meaning that following the law is not what saves us, the law no longer condemns us, Scripture is quite clear in telling us that obedience to the law still serves good purposes for us. Obedience to the law still serves good purposes for us. On one level, we can look at the law and it shows us our need for salvation because we know that we can't fulfill it perfectly, no matter how hard we try. Each one of us in this room has broken God's law at some point in our lives. Maybe you've already broken it this morning. Maybe you've broken it since I've started preaching this sermon, right? And so we know that we need a savior. It pushes us back to Christ. That is one of the purposes of the law, to show us our need for our savior, to show us our sin, but also to show us God's grace. But we can also look at the law and see in it God's design for the good and true and beautiful way that we are to live in this life, to be in this world. This is part of what the Bible is talking about when it talks about being wise, that we would have eyes to see the way that God has designed things, the way that God has willed for us to live and to follow in it. That's what wisdom means in scripture or part of what wisdom means in scripture. And so we follow God's law to our benefit as individuals and in community with one another. Just as any loving parent gives rules to their children to protect them and to guide them and to help them grow into maturity, our Heavenly Father has given us rules and guidelines for us to follow because they are good for us. They protect us. They help us grow into maturity. The law is there for our benefit, to help us thrive and to flourish in this life. I would also say that there's a way in which our obedience to God strengthens our relationship with him. The book of 1 John relates our love of God with our obedience to his commands. And when we obey God, we learn to trust him. And we get to experience his goodness and his faithfulness the more we put obedience into practice. The reformer John Calvin, uh, he wrote uh, many, many books. He's sort of the father of my tradition, the reformed tradition, has a great quote where he says, all true knowledge of God is born from obedience. All true knowledge of God is born from obedience. So we come to know God more as we obey him. So when Paul calls the Philippians to obedience, all of this is behind what he is saying. We should obey because it is good for us and God wants what is best for us. As we often sing in here, God is for us, and we can trust that. God is for us. So when Paul says, work out your salvation, it doesn't mean that you are left on your own to figure it out for yourself. Good luck, everybody. What Paul is talking about is he's saying, live your life out of the salvation that you have been given in Christ. We aren't called to obey so that we can be saved, but we are called to obey because we have already been saved. Please hear that. We're not called to obey so that we can be saved, but because we have already been saved. In other words, live as the redeemed person that you are in obedience to the living God and to your Lord Jesus Christ who loved you and gave himself for you. So what about fear and trembling? What are we to do with those two words, fear and trembling? Are we supposed to be afraid, living our lives in fear? 
Well, if we can hear an echo of the Old Testament here in this phrase, then it helps us to fill out the purpose of these words, what Paul is trying to say for us. Because this was a common response that people had when confronted with in the presence of the living God in the Old Testament. Fear and trembling. It means living before a holy God with reverence and awe. This is a different way to think about it. We should be wary of God's wrath for certain. We should be wary of God's wrath. And yet we remember that the Old Testament says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That we are called to live in reverence and awe before a holy God. It's a reminder to us of God's holiness and our humanness. And it's the second way that Paul is tying these, this passage back to last week's passage. Because we see Jesus high and lifted up. Worshipped and glorified at the end of our passage last week. And so as we live obediently as God's redeemed people, we do so before a holy God whom we see in Jesus Christ. Because he himself is the Holy One of Israel. And we also live that life in fellowship with him. And so we should do it with a certain sense of reverence and awe. With fear and trembling. Paul wraps up this this first paragraph we're looking at this morning by saying, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. And here Paul wraps it up well. He puts it all back on God himself. And several commentaries on Philippians put it this way. They said, salvation is God's work from beginning to end. Salvation is God's work from beginning to end. When working out what it means to live as God's redeemed people, we are learning to live by what God has already worked into us. And though Paul doesn't say it explicitly here, what we're talking about is the Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us, the spirit of the risen Christ, who is the spirit of Christ in us as his followers. It's the Holy Spirit who works in us and gives us both the will to live obediently, the desire to do so, but who also empowers us to act on those desires, to strengthen us to live obediently before God, to actually be obedient. And all of this God does in order to fulfill his good purpose. God is working out his plan for the redemption of the world in and through us. Sinners coming to repentance, restored and reconciled in Jesus Christ. This is God's good purpose and the glory goes to him. So here, Paul makes a shift, and he goes from a general call to obedience to the Philippians to a specific way that he wants to see them obey. Paul says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. He just makes it sound so simple. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. It's just so easy. Just, just stop doing it, people. Don't grumble anymore. Don't argue with each other anymore. It's, it's like he says in other places. Just, just be humble. Just be humble. No problem. Just consider others' needs more important than your own. Just go, just go do it, everyone. These instructions sound so basic, and yet they are so challenging to put into practice. But we're working toward the goal here, unity in the body of Christ for the sake of the gospel. Humility serves that purpose, the purpose of humility in the body of Christ. Being like-minded with one another serves that purpose too. And now Paul says, Not grumbling or arguing serves that purpose as well, to bring unity to the body of Christ. 
Now, it sounds like Paul is just telling them to stop being so negative with each other. Just stop being negative. Don't just have a more positive and optimistic attitude. But grumbling is a word that has deep biblical roots. Does anybody know where we first see the word grumbling in Scripture? Can anybody tell me? Take a risk here. All right. We see it first in the Exodus. We see it first in the Exodus. The Israelites grumble against Moses and against Aaron and against their leaders. And they grumble against the Lord. The Israelites, if you remember, had spent 400 years in slavery to the, Egypt, to the Egyptians, in bondage. And many generations passed without any of them knowing what it meant to live as free people. And during that time, they cried out to the Lord over and over again for generations, asking God to deliver them and to set them free, to save them. They called out to God to save them from their bondage. And God heard their cries and he called Moses and he sent Moses to lead his people out of captivity. And there's the epic showdown between Moses and Pharaoh and God sends all of the plagues until finally Pharaoh relents. And he lets God's people leave Egypt. And so they pack up all of their things and they go out into the wilderness on their way to the promised land. But then Pharaoh has second thoughts and he sends his army after them to chase them down, to subdue them, to bring them back, to enslave them again. And so God has Moses part the Red Sea and the Israelites pass through to safety on dry ground. And while Pharaoh's army gets swallowed up and consumed by the water, by the flood. And so finally, the Israelites are free. They are free. And they start on their way through the wilderness to the land that God has promised them. And this is one of the major redemptive stories that we see in the Old Testament. And it's this great moment where they get to the other side of the Red Sea and the waters go back over Pharaoh's army and they're set free. And, and we know that God is going to be faithful to them and lead them to the promised land. But not very long after all of this, within a few short verses, the Israelites start grumbling. And we see this in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. It says, in the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and against Aaron. And the Israelites said to them, if only we had died in Egypt by the Lord's hand. There we sat around pots of meat and we ate all the food that we wanted. But you have brought us out into the desert to starve the entire assembly to death. Grumbling. Grumbling. After all of that, after hundreds and hundreds of years of waiting and of praying, after everything God did through Moses to finally rescue them, after all of the miraculous works that they witnessed and they experienced for themselves, including one of the most amazing miracles in the Bible, after they were able to look behind them and see that no longer was Pharaoh's army subduing them, but all that was in front of them was the promised land, here they are saying, why did you bring us here? Why did you bring us out here? God, we were better off back in Egypt. We were better off back in bondage and in slavery than we are here. We would have been better off dying in captivity than we are right now. Now, it's easy to read this passage, to read these verses, and to pass judgment on the Israelites to think, how can they say this? How dare they respond to God this way after everything that God has done for them? And yet there's something in all of us that we can recognize in the Israelites if we are willing to admit it. 
The Israelites in the Exodus, they are there to serve as a metaphor for us of our own redemption. Because we were in bondage to sin. And God has delivered us. And he sent his son Jesus Christ to set us free. And we're being led through the wilderness of this life to the promised land of eternal life with God. We're being called to faithful living to God through that journey in this life, in the wilderness. And yet we too grumble. We grumble and we question God and we doubt his goodness at times. And we wonder if we wouldn't have been better off if we had stayed in our old lives or maybe if we returned to them now. The Psalms talk about this in lots of places where it looks around at the wicked people and says, they are thriving. They're the ones who are flourishing. Lord, what am I doing being faithful to you? Maybe I would be better off pursuing all these other things. And we find our own idols to worship and to give our lives to. And sometimes we just blatantly disobey the Lord. Looking at the Israelites can sometimes be like looking in a mirror and seeing ourselves reflected there. And so when Paul tells the Philippians not to grumble or argue, it's not just a call to be nicer to each other or just not to be so negative, but Paul is pointing back to the Israelites and saying, don't be like them in this way. Don't be like them in this way. Now, this is not to say that we should never question anything, that there aren't places to look with discernment and see that things are going wrong and we need to call them out and correct them. But there are fruitful ways of doing that and not fruitful ways of doing that. But what Paul is talking about here is having a spirit of discontent, a spirit of of ungratefulness, a posture of doubting and questioning God's goodness and his faithfulness. And it's born from pride. It's born from a lack of humility. It's born from a sense of saying, I know what's best for me, and I'm not getting it. And so I'm going to let people know about this. And it comes out as grumbling. And it's often contagious, and it can spread quickly, and it's really destructive both to our own souls and to the whole body of Christ when we grumble. One of my favorite uh, Christian authors is C.S. Lewis. I'm I'm sure many of you have heard of him. One of the things I love about Lewis is that he's such a great uh, student of the human condition. He just really has an insight into what human beings are like, and particularly the ways that we uh, struggle with our sin. And C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Great Divorce, uh, which I would commend to you. And in The Great Divorce, he presents all of these ghosts, so to speak. Uh, And they all represent sort of different aspects of the human condition. And one of the ghosts in this book is a grumbling ghost, a grumbling ghost who just is complaining the entire time about everything that's going on. And the narrator in the book looks at this ghost and interacts with them and then reflects on grumbling this way. The narrator says, hell begins with a grumbling mood, always complaining, always blaming others, but you are still distinct from it. You may even criticize it in yourself and wish that you could stop it. But there may come a day when you can know when you can no longer, there will be no you left to criticize the mood or even to enjoy it. But just the grumble itself going on and on forever, like a machine. What Lewis is pointing to is the destructive nature of grumbling. Maybe not in a, it's maybe not as blatant and obvious as other sins that occur in people's lives. 
I think in a lot of ways, it's more insidious than a lot of sins that people struggle with. And yet, it is so destructive. The reason grumbling is so destructive is because eventually it eats us up inside. That's what what Lewis is talking about in this quote. It robs us of our joy, of our thankfulness. It tears down rather than builds up. And so Paul is trying to put the people of God in Philippi on guard against grumbling. And ultimately, what we have to deal with is the fact that all of our grumbling, while we might think that it's directed at other people and organizations and institutions and whatever else, really on some level, all of our grumbling is directed toward God. Moses says as much to the Israelites in Exodus chapter 16, verse 8, just a little bit later than what we read before. Moses says this, who are we? Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Who are we? You are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Being a grumbler may be more serious than we realize. And I think it's worth examining our hearts and doing business with God about it. Then we might go to God and pray and say, Lord, am I a grumbler? Do I have a grumbling spirit? Is this something that I need to repent of? Lord, help help me if this is true about me. Again, Paul's big concern is unity within the church, in the body of Christ. And anything that might hinder that unity, anything that might hurt it, he just wants to get rid of it, to get it out. And he knows the impact that grumbling and arguing can have on a community, the way that it tears them down and divides them. And so instead, Paul starts to build a positive vision for them to live into. So first he gives the prohibition. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. But then he gives the why. He says, so that you will become blameless and pure. Children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. And then you will shine among them like the stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And again, Paul is drawing from deep within the Old Testament as he's making his case here. And in Genesis chapter 17, God tells Abraham that he is to be blameless as he walks before God. And then in the book of Deuteronomy, God refers to Israel in their unfaithfulness as blameworthy children, a warped and crooked generation. In other words, Paul is saying to the church, stop grumbling, stop arguing, and then you will be living more fully into the covenant that I made with Abraham so long ago when I first made or called a people for myself. He says, don't be like the people who were unfaithful to me in the wilderness, But live into your identity as my children, the redeemed people of God. And then Paul turns all of this back to their witness. Because it's still about the advance of the gospel for him. And here he's drawing from the book of Daniel, uh, chapter 12, verse 3. He says, those who are wise, this is what Daniel says, those who are wise will shine like the brightness of the heavens. And those who lead many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. The book of Daniel is all about living to faithfully to God in a place of exile, in a culture that is hostile to God and to people who are faithful to God, a culture that demands our loyalties be given to other people and things. And yet Daniel and his friends had a powerful witness in that place. And God used them for his glory because of their faithfulness. They shone like stars in a dark place among a warped and crooked generation. And Paul is holding this out in front of the church as an example to live into. He says, you too will shine like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. 
the word of life, it reminds me of when Peter says to Jesus, you have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Or when Jesus himself quotes Deuteronomy saying, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. God's word is the word that brings life. And we are to hold to it, to live according to it, and to share it with others. And as we live according to God's word, then our light will shine before others. Paul sees the Philippians as a people in exile. God's children living in a hostile place amongst a warped and crooked generation. And he knows the challenges and the difficulties that face them, but he also knows that God can and will use them in that place to bring others to himself. He doesn't call them to withdraw and isolate themselves from the world around them. He doesn't call them to accommodate the world around them. He calls them to faithful and wise living according to God's word right where they are. He calls them to obedience and unity for the sake of the gospel, to live into their identity as God's children, as God's redeemed people, and then to work out what that means in their day-to-day living as individuals and with each other. And in this way, they will let their light shine before men. These are calls that are for every church and every time and place, including us here at ICP. We are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, to live faithfully before God as his children, trusting his Holy Spirit is working in us according to his good pleasure. Amen. Amen. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, Lord, want to be your faithful children. We thank you that you have redeemed us, that you have saved us, that you have called us to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. And we thank you that your Holy Spirit works in us It gives us the desire to follow you and obey you and gives us the strength to do so. And so, God, we pray that you would make us your faithful people. Help us to live as your redeemed children. Lord, if there is a spirit of grumbling or arguing in us, would you get rid of it? Lord, we pray that we would do all things for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.